0: Well, as we continue in Exodus, we come to the famous plagues on Egypt. This is the ultimate confrontation between God and Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods. This is the ultimate clash of the titans, you could say. I I almost think of this as like the Marvel movies of of the ancient Near East. Uh, where God is going to confront the Egyptian gods. And and as we're going through these plagues over the coming weeks, we're going to be considering the gods of our day that God is confronting as well. And and as we begin today with this first plague, we're going to see this question that these plagues are going to confront us with. And that question that we'll come back to again and again throughout the plagues is: are we trusting in something or someone? And and by trusting in that something or someone, that wrong thing, it's causing chaos in our lives. Are are we trusting in something, putting our, our, our trust, our faith in something or someone that is causing chaos in our lives? When uh, I remember this, when this really hit me, uh, when I bought my first car, it was a 1982 Volkswagen Rabbit. And when I went out to buy it, I'm, I'm from Ohio, this is in Appalachia, Ohio. I, I went out to buy the car and uh, it was this old retired school teacher and the car had been sitting under this tarp. In, in fact, this was like 2000, what was this, 2001 or 2002? The car hadn't been driven since 1994, only had 60,000 miles on it, even though it was almost 20 years old. And I, I remember I, I asked the, the guy who was selling, I said, I said is it, is it, does it run well? And he was like, yeah, yeah, well, that's how all blue collar people in Ohio talk. Uh, and I was like, are you sure? And he was like, yep. Well, see, here's the thing. I would never, it was a manual, it wasn't an automatic transmission. I'd never driven a manual in my life. So I brought one of my mom's friends with me, and she came out. She's like, I'll, I'll guide you through it. And so we, the guy tells me, yep, you can trust it. And, and I drive off. And after we, we drive away, I'm, you know, start, stop, start. I'm trying to figure out how to drive this thing. But then there's this hill because it's in Appalachia, Ohio, and there are hills everywhere. And we're going down the hill. And as we're going down the hill, and the car's picking up speed, I press on the brake. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience when the brake just goes down. There's nothing there as far as resistance. And I think maybe I pressed the wrong pedal because they put so many pedals on these things. So I slam down on it again and again, and I'm slamming on all the pedal. Brakes are completely out. In fact, the only reason why they had been working or the clutch, any of it had been working was because it was so rusted over that for the first half a mile I was driving it, it was catching. But now all of a sudden the brakes are out and I'm heading down a hill. So then I'm heading down a hill and it's kind of like this buddy rom-com, right? Where I'm like, ha, ah, look at my monster, ha, ah, ah, ha, ah, ha, right? And it's picking up speed. So then I grab the emergency brake and I yank it up and there's just like the little cord is just dangling. Like laughing at me, <laughs> this is hilarious, right? And so I have no brakes, I have no emergency brake either, and so we're heading down this hill at full speed. And I realize as we're getting to this the last road, it was kind of like a T, and then as we hit that, go over it at full speed and picking up speeds. Thankfully, don't get hit by anyone, and then realize I'm about like 50 yards from the Muskingum River because it just goes straight into the river. And so instead of going to the river, I have to make a quick choice. Do I go into the river with the car or do I? And I look over and there's this little house. So I just turn the wheel and we're boom, 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 boom. And I go right into the rock foundation of that house. And so we kind of stop and we look at each other and I get out and I look and I realize cars used to have these chrome bumpers and I realized there was hardly a dent on the house and there's hardly a dent on the car. So we actually pushed the car over into a nearby field, and then we, uh, we called someone, and we went home. Um, so I, I actually, <laughs> you ask, what was the condition of the house inside? And my answer would be, I don't know, because we just left. Uh, <laughs> the way that story ends is now I'm a pastor. Uh, but see, what happened was, it was a near disaster, absolute chaos, because I trusted in someone, and I was given them faulty advice, and I trusted in something, the car, and it didn't work like I thought. And it ended in absolute near disaster. And it's, it's kind of a humorous story. could have ended very badly, though, but uh, a humorous story. But this, think about it in our lives. Think about it in our lives of the people or the things that we turn to that we think we can put our trust into, whether it's for safety or it's just for affirmation or security or comfort or pleasure. And what happens when we put our trust in the wrong thing is it leads in a similar way to a complete disaster, unleashes chaos in our lives. And the reason why God put these plagues in here, the reason why they're recorded, the reason why they're here for us is because God is going to say, we are so prone to follow the little g gods of our day. We're so prone to follow things, and many times what could be good things, People, our spouses, it could be our careers, good things that we're meant to invest in, but we can make them into a God thing, and when we treat them that way and trust in them in that way, it can lead to absolute chaos in our lives. And God is going to, in each of these plagues, what He's going to do in the context of Egypt is expose the gods of that day and the chaos that it's causing in their lives. God gives a picture through these plagues. It's a warning as well, but also gracious because it kind of wakes us up as we walk through each. So what we're going to do, these plagues do actually uh, map over this time in the calendar called Lent. This is a time of the year, and we're not, we're not doing a ton uh, with Lent every week to focus on it, but it's going to, this is a time of the year where the church has historically looked at their, their hearts, looked at their souls, looked at the ways in which they're turning away from Christ in order to prepare their hearts for the good news of the death and resurrection of the Son of God. So these plagues, we're going to be walking through them during this season of Lent right on down to, till Easter. And each week, we're going to have a different kind of angle to look and examine ourselves and, and go before the Lord and seek the Lord and the ways that our hearts are turning to all these things and the chaos it's unleashing in our life. But today what we're going to look at is kind of a, a first to set the stage for these plagues. And we're going to see first the claim of the gods. What is the claim of the little g gods in our lives that God is confronting here? Second, then we're going to look at the chaos of the gods. What, what is this chaos that the, god, the little g gods in our lives unleash? And then lastly, we're going to look at the cure of the true God. So let's pray and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you. Lord, that you do not desire our lives to be filled with chaos. You are a God of order, you are a God of joy, you are a God of peace, you are a God of shalom. And Lord, you do not desire our lives to be driven by lies are our lives to be driven by false hope, are our lives to be driven by unnecessary fear, are our lives to be driven to despair. But you desire us to have life in you and and to enjoy that, that, that blessed state with one another. And so, Lord, would you show us the path? Spirit, would you reveal in each of us wherever this applies? And would you reveal and point us in the direction that you would have for us? Lead us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the claim of the gods. Look again, well, let's start chapter 7 of Exodus. We read starting in verse 14 during the scripture reading. Let's start back to get some context in verse 1. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by the great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. And now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So most of these plagues are going to be God confronting Pharaoh. And we'll see through that, the Egyptian gods. And he's doing this via Moses and Aaron as his mouthpiece. And they have this encounter with Pharaoh where we hear for the first time this famous phrase that's going to come up again and again of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now, now what does that mean, hardening a heart? I I think in some ways, conceptually, we understand it. That's impervious, that there's a hardness, uh, that there's there's kind of a callousness to it. But but what does it mean? And, And here's the thing. What does it mean in the context of it up here in Egypt, ancient Egypt? Well, a more accurate translation of the word for, that's normally translated hard. In the Hebrew, would be a translation uh, that would be more like heavy. Uh, that, the word here, it's saying that Pharaoh's heart is heavy. Now, we use hard because we're like, how else do we translate this? What does heaviness mean? Well, it's helpful to understand the context of how the Egyptians understood that final judgment scene when you would die. See, in Egypt, they, they had this mythology that when you would die, you would then go before the Egyptian god, and when you go before the Egyptian god, had a big head of a, of a crocodile or alligator, and you would go before this god, and, and your, your heart would be placed on a scale. I think we have a picture of this from some of the uh, Egyptian artwork that captures this. If you notice, on the left side is a heart in the scale. On the right side, then, is a feather, And the idea was that if your heart was heavier than the feather, then it meant that your heart was actually weighed down with misdeeds and sin. See, what God is saying here is that Pharaoh is not who he claims to be. If you were to ask Pharaoh in ancient Egypt, he was the God, he was the one you would turn to for the life that you always wanted. You would go to him. And it's kind of like when I went to that guy and I was like, can I really trust you? And he's like, huh, yep, yep, it's all good, right? Pharaoh was the same way. And he claimed, if you will give your life to me, if you will worship me, if you will worship these gods, then your life will go well. That's the claim of the gods. And what God does here is he's exposing in front of all of Egypt, using their language, the language of their mythology, saying, no, 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 as this goes on, I'm going to show you progressively that Pharaoh's heart is very heavy. God is countering the claim of Pharaoh. He's making a statement. And these plagues are going to further reveal. You know, there's an old Puritan statement Uh, or phrase, uh, the same sun that uh, hardens the soil melts the ice. And as one of the, so the the Hebrew word for heavy is where we get the same Hebrew word, kabod, for glory. And over and over again, we're going to see those two words juxtapose. I will harden or make heavy Pharaoh's heart, and it will demonstrate my what? My glory. Pharaoh is saying, I'm the true weighty, or sorry, the Lord is saying, Yahweh is saying, I'm the true weighty one. I'm the one who has life within himself. I have true glory. This is a false glory. And progressively, as God reveals his glory in these signs, unfortunately, his heart will not melt like ice, but it will harden like clay. So God counters the claim of Pharaoh with his, his own claim. And this is going to set up, it's it's almost like a template for what's going to happen here in all these plagues. Remember, this is the context right before the first plague. So continue then in verse 8. He said, "...then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent." So Pharaoh, or Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt, and they did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now you read that and you go, what are we supposed to do with this, right? Interesting series of events. Do you know that this is actually uh, this scene was the inspiration for J.K. Rowling for Harry Potter? Sorry, I'm just kidding. That's not true. That was a joke. Uh, <laughs> I was like, but it reads like that, right? Like it almost reads like a scene out of Harry Potter. Like all of a sudden we have magicians, we have sorcerers, we have all this going. You're like, what are we supposed to do with this? What's going on? Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Uh, this this scene again is thick with irony, Egyptian irony. See, Pharaoh, I think we have another picture here on his crown, had two serpents. Those two serpents were the emblem of Pharaoh's power. The eye of Horus is behind it, which I mentioned in an earlier sermon. Uh, But these two serpents uh, represented lower and upper Egypt, the extent of Pharaoh's kingdom. And so Pharaoh has made this claim, I am the one who is glorious. I am the God you should follow. And so what God says is throw down that staff and it becomes a serpent. And then they throw down, it's kind of like a, he goes, nope, see, I'm the God. I'm the true God, Yahweh is saying. And then his magicians throw down serpents, and they're like, they try to one-up him. And they're like, nope, see, we're we're mighty, we're God. And then God, that's why it's important that Aaron's staff then swallows up theirs because God is saying, no, 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 you may claim to be God, but you are nothing compared to me. What God is saying here is that the claims of Pharaoh and the little G-gods God, of every generation are empty, that they're lies, that they will merely weigh you down and captive, keep you captive, enslave you, drive your life to despair. the claim of the gods. It's a false claim. But when we follow, the question is when we follow them though, what happens? It unleashes chaos. So next, the chaos of the gods. We continue then to what we read in the scripture reading. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water." Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and over all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. I'm just going to read the next, I know this is a lengthy reading, I'm just going to read all the way down through this scene, so we get the whole context. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. Now notice here, let me pause. Notice he's holding up the staff. The same staff that had just been used to make this claim, this sign against Pharaoh and his claims to be God. And all throughout these plagues, what is God going to command Moses to do when he pronounces judgment on Pharaoh on Egypt, when he unleashes a new plague, hold up the staff. It's like a mockery, right? Remember this sign. Remember this claim that you are empty. He holds up the staff. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood, 21. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. Love that, the secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this into heart. Isn't it interesting how Pharaoh, as his heart is hardened, just becomes more and more almost the picture of a recluse, more and more isolated, more and more walled off. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. So what is happening here? How are we to understand these ten plagues? This will be an important place to set these up before explaining this one. Now, one, and this is one I'm, I'm kind of wrestling with, but I, I, I've actually read a decent amount of just kind of, I don't know, different literature about ancient Egypt. And, and here's something I read And I want to put it here as something to think about as far as the context. I'll be honest, I've never read this in a commentary or anything like that. This is me reading ancient sources and going, very interesting. Something we miss in the context here is that this is pretty soon after the new pharaoh has come to power. At the end of chapter 2, pharaoh dies. Then everything after that is in pretty quick succession. And so at this point, after the pharaoh has died, now you've got this new pharaoh, and this would have been around the time that he would have been inaugurated as the new pharaoh. Well, when the new pharaoh was inaugurated, they would have this long festival. And in this long festival, they would have reenacting, like theater, public theater, of all the gods fighting with one another, vying with one another who, for who was the most powerful. And isn't it interesting that's perhaps right after that festival, right after that context, when the people have been watching all the gods fight, that now Yahweh confronts the gods of Egypt. But here's what the plagues are each doing. First, each plague is going to confront an Egyptian god that Pharaoh uh, was associated with and that the Egyptians followed. Uh, This is why in Numbers, another book written in parallel chronologically with this time, Moses writes this in Numbers 33. He says, the Egyptians, on their gods, also the Lord executed judgments. Throughout the Old Testament, it's understood and phrased as God was not just unleashing plagues on Egypt, that he was judging the gods of Egypt through the plagues. He was exposing them. In a moment, we'll look at which Egyptian god in this plague and why. Second, so first one was that he was confronting Egyptian God. Second is that each plague captures how creation, this is key, how creation or life as it should be is undone. Chaos is unleashed when we trust or follow in that God. The, the reason why, because, you know, I, I would always, why 10 plagues? You ever wondered that? Why 10? Is it just kind of a random number? Well, the 10 plagues parallel the 10 divine decrees from Genesis 1. Uh, We'll see parallels in every single one of these plagues with one of the days of creation where it very specifically in the language of the passage is paralleling Genesis 1 language to show that now all what God called good and created for good so we would thrive in this world with Him is undone. Fascinating. Each plague will follow, I guess you could say, this format. A false god confronted and exposed, and the consequences of following the false god captured in the plague. So what Egyptian god was being confronted here? The opening, this is uh, from John Curit, who studies ancient... Egyptian culture, he says, the opening disaster was clearly directed against the Nile River, which in its inundation, which means the, the rising and falling, kind of the different, uh, what do you want to call it, kind of oscillations of the river throughout the year, uh, whether it rose too high and overflowed the banks and, spread, and, and flooded everything, or if it dried up and completely, there was no water left, the inundations. Was that done in a controlled way? Was deified and person- personalized as the Egyptian god, happy. Kind of ironic, happy. In fact, as early as the Pyramid text, the Egyptians called the Nile River by the divine name Happy. They often portrayed the god as a bearded man with female breasts and a hanging stomach, which is probably has to do with fertility, which is why it's pregnant. All of which reflect the concept of fertility. And indeed, Egyptian writing spoke of Happy as the one who kept Egypt alive. A major consequence of the Nile's turning to blood was the death of the fish, a staple of the Egyptian diet. The people were unable to eat or drink from the river. The river and its god could no longer supply the people's needs. See, the Nile was the main artery. It was the lifeblood of this entire civilization. To this day, you could go, we could do, I should have put up just a Google Maps shot of today in Egypt. All along where the Nile is, it's fertile, it's green, harvest, everyone can live. You go a few miles out then, it's all desert. No life. Manil was the main artery. The civilization was built on it. And Happy was who Pharaoh was understood in part to be an incarnation of. All of this, these pantheons of gods, Pharaoh is understood to have either some kind, of a, some kind of a relationship to these gods. Usually some kind of like he's the incarnation of this god, the embodiment of it. This god promised to give you everything you ever wanted or needed, you would worship him. But God exposes this false God and turns the very Nile, their very source of life, into a symbol of death. And note that it extends beyond just the blood in the Nile. It says in verse 21 that there was blood throughout all the land. If you notice the language, actually, in, in 17 down through 19, the, the blood is, is in the land. It's not just like the rivers, like this freaky river of blood, right? Like it, but it's all over the place. What's interesting is that's where the parallel language comes in from the second day of creation. In the second day of creation, it says, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land to earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. There are parallels exactly here with what's translated as pools of water. Uh, Even the let us statement when God makes his pronouncement is exactly the same in the Hebrew, but also this language of water and land being separated. Now the water from the Nile is overflowing into the land around it and overtaking everything. What's the point? The point is God is saying when you follow the wrong thing, then it reaps death And chaos and a stench all throughout your life. It corrupts and permeates everything. Everything corrodes. Everything is polluted. Everything goes to chaos. Relationships fall apart. Your body falls apart because you're living with anxiety and stress and maybe just secrets, guilt and shame. What's supposed to be life just becomes blood. It's like a big murder scene. Each week, we'll go more in depth with the parallels between these ancient gods and and, and, and modern parallels or, or gods. But this week, again, the plague is forcing us to ask, are we, it's a principle, Are we giving ourselves to, following something, trusting in something, that when we're honest with ourselves when we look around, man, the even more we try to give ourselves to, whether it's our career, we try to give ourselves to find pleasure, to find safety, whatever these things are that we give ourselves for. It's different for every one of us, but when we give ourselves these things, if we're honest with ourselves, do we just find that it's just more stench, more blood, that thing that we trust in that promises everything we always wanted. You know, that. I think I shared this illustration. This really hit me because it could be so many different areas, but uh, the M. Night Shyamalan, most recent, you thought it would be good, but it's not good movie, um, called Old. And in that movie, it, it's interesting because it captures... They, they end up on this island. I'm going to ruin the movie for you now. Uh, they end up on this island, and time goes fast. It's like every minute is like, I don't know. It's like every or every hour is like seven years or something. And so they all of a sudden they're growing old at this expedited rate. And, and what was interesting about me, whether it's intended or not, is you see in miniature what happens when we follow things and give ourselves the things. In, in rapid succession, because we can easily over decades we can think it's something else, but you, you see it so quickly. And, and there's this one at the, at the beginning, there's this kind of gal who's like a like supermodel, she's an influencer on social media. And of course, they're on the beach, so she's taking selfies and her swimsuit and all that, and posting them, trying to post them. And uh, and so she she has given herself to the god of beauty, whether it's the god of attraction, whether it's the god of being alluring. But then she's aging, and, and, and about 12 hours into it, all of a sudden, they can't find her anywhere. And so they're looking for her everywhere, and they can't find her. And eventually, they realize that she's in this cave. And by this point that they find her, it's essentially she's like 90-some years old. And she's in this cave, and they find her finally, and, and they finally put the light on her, and they see her age, and she's screaming at them, Get away from me! Get away from me! because she's high and her body is brittle and broken down and everything she has given her life to, everything she valued, everything she put her worth, her security, a sense of I'm okay and I'm enough, however you want to put it. In that moment, what she saw was, it's all gone. The God of beauty, the God of attraction. As one author, I, I heard once put it if we give ourselves those things then we will actually end up dying a thousand deaths before they actually bury us now for you it could be attractiveness beauty it could be it could be your intelligence it could just be something with your career it could be finding pleasure it could be finding that sense of attachment but you keep finding yourself empty because that person that you keep over Overly giving yourself to this person and that person and that person. They always fail on their promises. And you give the most vulnerable parts of yourself to them and they leave you empty. Or you give and 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 you give give to the God of a career which can be a great thing, but then at the end of the day you find your family in complete and utter chaos give and give and give ourselves and strive and wear ourselves down to get the stuff, whatever that stuff will be, get the experiences. And yet there's just the desire for more. Again, all these can be really good things. They're, they're honestly, a lot of these things are the things that God has blessed us with. They're they're good parts of his creation, but when they become gods, when we look to them to fill that part of us that only he can fill, what happens is they leave us empty. They unleash chaos in our lives. The gods make a false claim that they can satisfy, and the gods, when we follow them, unleash chaos. God doesn't want us to live this way. That's why these plagues are here. The plagues are actually, in many ways, very 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 gracious because they're they're meant to give us a picture that kind of jars us awake and helps us see what's going on in our souls. And in that way, that's not the end of the story for us. So, what do we do with that chaos? Lastly, the cure of the, the true God cure of the true God. Each week, we're going to consider how Christ, you could say, reverses the plague, deals with the plague, saves us from this plague, and frees us. And how does he do it? He does it by being plagued, by being cursed for us. And it all starts with his blood. It all starts with his blood. See, whereas the Nile, the blood of the Nile was a curse that brought death, the blood of Christ is a cure that brings life. What does that look like? Uh, This theme of of blood is going to run heavily throughout the Old Testament. There's an acknowledgement here that with this first curse, that the primary problem with following any other God but Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is that if we give ourselves these things, it will unleash death in our life, in every facet of our life. That's why, biblically, the price for sin, the price for following any other God is death. Because it's what we unleash in the world. And I know for a moment you go, whoa, come on, that's harsh. What I would volley back is that <laughs> I, I think we get this really well when somebody hurts us. Right? We're, we're quick to move to that like wanting people like, oh, you just see them, like all the ways you can get back at somebody or all the ways you can punish them. Like We get that when we're hurt, there is a heavy price to pay. You don't get the years of your life back when somebody does something to you. You don't get the moments back. Death is the cost. The only issue is that while we try to execute that judgment, we do it in a flawed way. God is the perfect judge. This is why by the end of Exodus, God will inaugurate a, a priesthood with a, a temple, a tabernacle at the time. but uh, And he's going to institute what would be the priesthood and the sacrifices. And, and this is how it would work with the sacrifice. You would a- acknowledge to a priest what, whatever your sin was. And according to the, the heinousness or the seriousness of your sin, you would then sacrifice an animal. So if it was like a small sin, so maybe it was like a little pigeon. If it's a big sin, you murder someone, maybe it's a couple bulls. And, and what they would do is they would, and this is key, for how, how do we really apply the blood of Christ to our life? We hear this in language, the blood of Christ. What does this mean? How do we turn by faith to Christ? Because we're putting our faith in these gods, how do we turn to Christ? Well, what happened with that sacrificial animal is you would acknowledge your sin, and actually what you would do, and apologies for this being graphic, but you would place your hand on the head of the animal, and with the other hand, you would cut its throat. And as you watched the lifeblood drain from that animal, as you looked into its eyes and watched its, its, its eyes... Succumb to death, you would recite your sin. It was a way of saying, I followed a false god, and that false god has unleashed this death. And only a payment that matches it can set things right. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament will say, of course, the blood of bulls and goats could never actually completely set things right. What you need is you need the blood of someone who can. And see, what happens is Jesus then becomes that sacrifice. Jesus is the one who is strung up on a cross where all of this season of Lent, where these plagues will lead us to on Good Friday. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who is the fitting sacrifice for our sin because he is God become man. And he goes upon the cross and God is the one who we have ultimately violated in our sin. He goes upon a cross and as the life drains from his eyes, what Jesus says when he says to place your faith in me is he's saying, will you, when you see me, do you recognize your sin and the need that this is the payment that you need? That this is what it takes to set things right. See, the first step, and each week we're gonna be looking at kind of further progressions of, of what do we do? What does it look like to turn to Christ with a dive? It's not always just just thinking about the blood, just think about the blood, just think about the blood. But the first step of turning, not to become reclusive like Pharaoh and kind of hide away from ever dealing with these things, but is to turn to God, to turn to his perfect atoning sacrifice. And to place your faith in him and say, you, you're the one, I don't know how to do this life, lead me. I know I need you to forgive me and free me so my life is not driven by this vacuum of a need for an identity, a need for success, a need for affirmation, a need for pleasure, a need for peace, need, because all these things I lack, but he says, come to me and I will give them to you. And it starts with your sin being forgiven. And knowing that, I will lead you. Romans 3, 23 through 26, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God, but all, all, that's all of us, and are justified by His grace as a gift. A gift. None of us can earn it. None none of us deserve it. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom put forward, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, a payment, a satisfaction, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier to the one of the one who has faith in Jesus. The Nile, the blood of the Nile points to the need for the blood of the Christ a righteous making freeing blood today consider am I truly trusting in Christ for my life am I is there something else that is actually the main artery Where else am I looking? And if I am, what's the chaos? What's the result? And then we acknowledge and we go before him and we confess our sin. I would. This is the step for this week, the application. Go before the Lord and, and ask, Lord, where am I not starting there? Where am I turning and trusting in so many other things to define me, to give me joy, to free me? I want to start here. And Jesus says, when you do, I will forgive you. I will free you. My grace is sufficient for you. And I will lead you and I will heal you. And the beauty is we can go to him when we're filled with a God, a world of gods that mislead us. We can turn to him Because we can trust him. And last, one we can trust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this gritty picture of the result of our sin, the the effects of it in our lives. Lord, would would you give us wisdom to see where this is true in our lives, where this is happening? Lord, would you give us the grace to, not like Pharaoh, just further harden our hearts, but Lord, to allow your glory to melt our hearts and to lay our hearts before you and say, Lord, would you you forgive me? Would you free me? Lord, would you call us by your grace? And Lord, would you show us what it looks like to walk by faith, to come to you first and foundationally by faith for the forgiveness of our sins, and then, Lord, in the coming weeks, what it looks like to walk in freedom in our day. So, Jesus, would you lead us? Would you heal us? Would you be with us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.